Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to this uh, special midweek episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. Uh, I'm traveling this week, and that's why we are doing it in midweek, because one should not miss any live streams. So uh, I hope you are all doing very well. And as always, before we begin, let me uh, greet you all. Let's see who all is there in the live chat. I can see G Film, Naman Panchal, Mohit, JP112, Aman George, Kostob, Pamel, Samarth, Dipto, Tejo, Meg, Dr. Surya Kant, Dagar, Yash Thakre, Ronak, Shivansh, Jigar, Mythic Boy, Changes, Modi, DK, Boss, Teki, Mathu, Sudan, Nair, Anus, Ansuya, Maros World, Vladimir Putin is here. Durga, good evening. Shubham, Vivek, Mao Zedong, comrade. Hello, comrade. Om, strangely, Proton, Harsh, Jain, Bharat Swami, Adolf is there. <laughs> Geopolitical Dubey, Jitendra Bharat first, Alpha, Nishant, Ayush, Ashwani, Sharma, Harsh, Zaveri, Akash, Dikshit, Abhinav, Aryan, Sharma, India, Unleashed, Mr. Giga, Child of India, Diling, Pegu, Tuti Futi, Paresh, Patil, Shubhajit, Kostu, Peacemaker, Bhupesh, Lone Rider, Andre, Feminist, Slayer, Priyanka, Tejo Meg, Shivam, Tanmay, Dheeraj, Lagerho Online, Meadows World, Shivansh, Rajat, Pawan, Ashima, Kamal, Bharat First, uh, Jasman Raj Singh, Melvin, Shubham, Harsh, Lucky JK, XP1101, Vishnu, Mohanan, Lone Rider, Priyanka, Swapna, Shivagami Devi, Chiching, Abhishek, Bhupesh, good evening, good day to all of you, Trupti, Kostub, uh, so many of you, thank you so much for being on this uh, live stream in the middle of the week. And uh, with that done, I'm sorry I cannot greet all of you, <laughs> just too many. But yeah, let's uh, get into the questions and let's see what we have today. Let's, uh, where, where do we begin? Let's begin here. Okay, let's begin with... Turkey. Tanvi says, what would be the effect on India's relations with Turkey and India's image in the world due to India's immediate help to Turkey, which supports Pakistan's stand on Kashmir and repeatedly in Pakistan's refusal to use the airspace and all. And Aditya says, says, this is a far-fetched optimistic question, but do you think that humanitarian aid towards a calamity-struck country could change its perspective towards the aider? In which case we're talking about India and Turkey relations and given the complexities, Armenia, Cyprus, Cyprus, etc. that are already entailed with it. All right, good question. So so what is happening? India is definitely aiding Turkey and India is doing, a, I mean, sending significant aid to Turkey. As we know, Turkey has recently been devastated by a series of earthquakes, two major ones, uh, well above seven on the on the, on the the moment scale, Richter scale, whichever it is. Very major earthquakes and lots of after aftershocks. It's been a humanitarian disaster, total tragedy. Lots of towns and cities have been wiped out. I mean, you know, you see all these videos of buildings crumbling and falling and people trapped in the rubble. Terrible situation in Turkey. It's winter, it's freezing, it's snowing in many places. Bad, bad situation. So India has been one of the first nations to respond and India is sending significant aid. Let's take a look at what kind of aid India is sending to Turkey. Let's see. Well, let's take a look at this. So I'm going to put some tweets by Siddhant Sibal, who is a journalist, on the screen. So India names its relief and rescue operation to help Turkey and Syria as Operation Dost. Fine, that's good. Sixth Indian military plane reaches, with relief, reaches quick hit, hit Turkey. 
This is in the morning today. This is an Indian military plane in Turkey. And uh, Indian, this is uh, the people who are departing in the plane, military personnel, NDRF people and all that. So this is what's happening. Sent more than 250 personnel, specialized equipment, uh, the relief material amounting to more than 135 tons to Turkey on five C-17 IAF uh, aircraft. Uh, and this is the sixth one here. So you can see how significant the aid is and the, all the details are there. Now, uh, Indian rescue of efforts in Nurdagi and field hospital in Hatay, Turkey. So you can see Indian medical personnel are already are already deployed there. They are helping out the people who are affected by the by the, by the earthquake. You can see that uh, already going on. This is from the Indian army. As you can see, the Turkish uh, civilians who are being helped by the Indian uh, medical personnel and other personnel are really thankful, very grateful. It's good. It's very good. Uh, Indian NDRF team in rescue operations in quake hit Turkey. Uh, you can see this is a very dangerous job and Indians are putting their lives on the line to, to help uh, the unfortunate people who have been affected by this complete disaster. This is very dangerous work. Yes. Uh, then what else? Indian military teams in Turkey with humanitarian assistance in the aftermath of the earthquake. This is from yesterday. So there's a whole, you know, uh, operation that's going on from within India. And uh, India's NDRF in Gaziantep, Turkey, the city was the epicenter of the earthquake that struck the country earlier this week. And you can see all these efforts are ongoing. So that's what India is doing. What else do we have? And Indian humanitarian assistance also reaches Damascus, Syria. So we are sending aid to Turkey as well as to Syria. So this is, uh, we saw all the images from Turkey and these are images from Syria. This is Damascus airport. So we have uh, handed over Indian relief to the local, one of the local ministers. Uh, so that's what India is doing. This is very significant help and India has responded with great alacrity. India is first of all showing to the world that not only can we take care of our own country, but as and when required, we can immediately send significant assistance to other nations, irrespective of, of where they stand on the geopolitical spectrum, whether they are our friends, you know, friendly towards India or aligned with India's enemies, doesn't matter. This is a humanitarian thing and we need to help people. So that's what India is doing. That's the background to these questions that have been asked. And obviously, it will cost a lot of money, which comes from the Indian taxpayers' uh, expense, right? Uh, so the question is, all of this that India is doing, will it? What will, be, what will be the effect of this on India's relationship with Turkey and India's image in the world overall? So first of all, the Turks the civilians who are helped by this they will certainly feel an enormous amount of gratitude those who are uh, those who are impacted by the indian aid and the indian medical personnel and the ndrf personnel who are rescuing people all of this will create goodwill think about afghanistan think about uh, the the fact that india has for the past two plus decades spent like I don't know how many billions of dollars in aid to Afghanistan in developing the nation. So in see the US, what the US did was it bombed thousands of pounds of democracy on Afghanistan soil. And then it funneled in billions of dollars of, of hundreds of millions of dollars in aid or assistance, whatever you want to call it. But that money went to the corrupt politicians. It helped the Americans buy the corrupt politicians. And that's how they, they 
uh, operated a puppet government in Afghanistan as long as they, as they, as they, as they ruled the nation, the Americans. Now, India also says, uh, invested more than a billion dollars in Afghanistan, but that money was not given to the corrupt politicians. That money was used for actual building and rebuilding efforts. We built dams, we built the parliament, we built hospitals, libraries, roads, all these things. We invested, we sent money for agricultural projects. So all of this actually helped the common man, woman and child in Afghanistan. We have been doing this for more than two decades. And as a result of this sustained effort, even the Taliban is not, they may want perhaps, but they are incapable of seeing India as an enemy. And whether they admit it or not, they feel warmth and gratitude towards India. Even the Taliban do. Because even the Taliban, their family members have been helped. And they, they have been impacted positively by what, by what India is doing. So if you do this over an extended period of, period of time, without asking for anything in return, it is impossible not for the recipient of your aid to feel gratitude towards you. So Afghanistan, we know very well, even under the Taliban, the enmity is with Pakistan and the Taliban seeks India as a benefactor and as a friendly nation. And they have been cooperating with India in all kinds of ways, the Taliban, especially with the Indian embassies and consulates in Afghanistan and uh, re rescue of various people and all those things. So now if we, since we are doing this with Turkey, see, it's, it's not going to be a sustained effort. We're not going to invest billions of dollars in Turkey for 20 plus years. That's not going to, not going to happen. We are doing this as a one-time thing because they are in need of, they are in desperate need of help from wherever it comes. So we are doing this. It will certainly create a certain amount of goodwill in Turkey. As long as it is publicized properly, sometimes we do a lot of good work, but we never let the world know. So this time we have Twitter. The Indian government is active on Twitter. It is disseminating information. We have journalists who are also disseminating the information about what India is doing. So overall, this will create a certain amount of change in the way the Turks regard India. Historically, the Turkish people and the Turkish government have been very anti-India. I would not say the Turkish people are very anti-India, but they, they certainly are pro-Pakistan. And when you are pro-Pakistan, it's natural for you to be anti-India. There's a religious angle to it and all that. But when this aid comes in, it's going to create some goodwill at a certain extent. And this will spread through word of mouth in Turkey by through those who are helped by India. And you can see those images, they, they, don't, they speak for themselves. So there's going to be a certain amount of goodwill in Turkey among the people. The government of Turkey and Mr. Erdogan, they have their own geopolitical agenda. That's not, not going to change. Your geopolitical imperatives and agenda and, and constraints, they are all dictated by geography and history. So if you look at geography and history, we know that Turkey, no matter how much we help them, the government and the leadership of Turkey will have their own specific uh, geopolitical and geostrategic ambitions, which which essentially right now is to create a new version of the Ottoman Empire. That's what Mr. Erdogan is working towards. That's not going to change. And if he wants to create a neo-Ottoman Empire kind of situation, he will need the, the help of nations, other nations. Clearly, India will not support that. So they will obviously have to take support from Pakistan. Because Pakistan has this thing, right? They, they need a daddy somewhere else. The Arabs have refused to be, be Pakistan's daddy. So now they want Turk, the, they want Turkey to be the daddy. And Turkey will use that for their own benefit. So from a big picture geopolitical perspective, it will not change much. Uh, but from a 
people to people thing kind of thing there will be a little amount or a certain amount a limited amount of goodwill in turkey towards india and if it is publicized properly and the turks really see that then it may be it may spread a little more as a one time a one time thing typically over time gets forgotten if you do it for two decades plus then it it is hard for anyone to forget that so this will create a few few ripples of goodwill in turkey let's not be overly optimistic now what about india's uh, image in the world it will certainly uh, embellish and burnish india's image in the world india has been doing this for a very long time helping people out when the uh, afghanistan thing happened the americans withdrew overnight from afghanistan lots of people were stranded in afghanistan including us citizens and india like i said india has a great amount of goodwill among even belong with the taliban and that is something india was able to leverage the taliban made sure that no indian is harmed even while they were in the, biz, in the in the process of capturing the city of kabul and taking over kabul even in that situation they ensured that no indian is harmed and indians who are in the indian government officials who are trying to rescue people and take them out of the country will be allowed to do it and no questions will be asked so india rescued turks from there india rescued a bunch of americans and people people of other nations this is something that's on the record india has also uh, been been offering uh, assistance for the covid thing to various countries and assistance for free not sending aid and then asking for money the americans when they send aid they typically ask for money when they say we are sending military aid to 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 taiwan they're actually getting money from taiwan it's not aid they're selling weapons so india sent a lot of assistance to lots of nations in in terms of vaccine or other thing and india did not take money for that so all of these actions and india obviously there have been lots of other uh, other such situations india has been operate, uh, involved in anti piracy operations uh, india rescued lots of people from yemen when things went bad so india does this uh, without expecting anything in return and overall over a period of time over a long period of time if you do it in a sustained manner the world notices and this becomes something that becomes part of your let's say reputation uh, marketers would call it would call it your brand yes it becomes part of your reputation india becomes india is in the process of becoming uh, acquiring this reputation of uh, being able to uh, undertake such difficult operations and being willing as a nation that's willing to offer aid to anybody who requires it which is a good thing so it's certainly going to uh, embellish and, and burnish india's image internationally obviously the west will not publicize this because they they don't it's not in their it's not it's not good for them if uh, a nation like india a poor third world nation etc starts becoming a major uh, becoming a major player on the global stage but that's what's happening so the west may not publicize it you will not see any washington post or guardian articles written about what whatever india is doing about the fact that india is helping turkey in its time of desperate need the washington post will not write about it the new york times the guardian they won't write a thing about it al jazeera also most likely won't write it about it write about this but social media bypasses all these gatekeepers so yes it's going to be uh, it's going to be noticed and it's it all of this adds incrementally to india's reputation uh what else will india and turkey relations improve because of this not not quite i mean it will it will become a little harder for mr erdogan to be anti india little slightly slightly harder but after all geostrategic imperatives are geostrategic imperatives so it will not uh, change much uh, in the terms of the india turkey relationship at a at a global level at a geopolitical level but 
overall, it, it is good for India's image. And India is doing this without expecting anything in return. India is not doing this as, as an image building exercise. India is genuinely offering help. And it, it has a reputation, it has a long track record of offering help uh, without strings attached. So that's uh, what India is doing, and it is a very good thing. Nikhil says, recently, Ukrainian lawmakers asked the United States to sanction India and China because we keep buying Russian oil. <laughs> so will this statement affect India-Ukraine relations? Well, it is true that uh, Ukrainian lawmakers or whoever it is, I heard about this, they have asked the US uh, to sanction India, to impose sanctions on India because India is buying Russian oil. The Americans obviously have uh, not reserved. They have said that uh, no, no such thing will happen. The India-US relationship is very important. And the obvious focus of that is towards China. The US needs India to counterbalance China. That's how the uh, balance of power works in geopolitics and especially on the Asian-Eurasian chessboard. So the Americans are not in a position to sanction India and they will not sanction India. The question, the other question is, will this, uh, will, will this call for sanctions affect India-Ukraine relations? <laughs> <laughs> Let's understand Ukraine foreign policy and internal policy. Now, I'm sure you've heard me say this, that Ukraine has transformed itself into a U.S. vassal state. Vassal. I use the French pronunciation of vassal. So when you are a vassal of, of, of an overlord, what does it really mean? It means that you have outsourced policy to your overlord. You have outsourced your foreign policy to your overlord. You have outsourced your economic policy to your overlord. And you have outsourced some parts of your internal policy also to your overlord. So you are nominally independent. You can have elections as long as the elections go in the right direction and all that. But at the end of the day, you are controlled by an external Power. That's what Ukraine is. That's what Pakistan is. That's what, what most of the EU and NATO nations are. They are all vassals of the United States. So when Ukraine, when, when it's in a position, in a situation that its foreign policy is entirely controlled and dictated by, uh, by the United States, what does it mean? It means that India-Ukraine relations are actually India-US relations. Okay, so if the uh, Ukrainians have uh, made this call to sanction India, it means that also has been instigated by somewhere in by somewhere in the in the in the U.S. Uh, apparatus. Whenever a foreign policy statement is made from Ukraine, it most likely originates outside Ukraine, and it is Ukraine is like a sock puppet. So the Americans obviously want to to keep on pressuring India. Uh, their formal official statements will, will be that we respect India's sovereignty and independence and we need India on our side and all that. But indirectly, they will keep on running this campaign. They have these this, this enormous multitude of disposable minions on social media, you know, think tank experts and journalists and all that. They have all these media publications like The Guardian, The New York Times, Washington Post, whatnot, I'll, maybe Al Jazeera as well, uh, and all that, and various other... Uh, European uh, publications and all that. So they use all of this to keep pressuring India. But their official statement that comes from the uh, from the State Department is that we respect India's sovereignty and uh, India is an indispensable partner. So 
understand this, please, that India-Ukraine relations are actually, Ukraine is just a proxy. Their foreign policy is entirely controlled by the U.S. So India-Ukraine relations are actually India-U.S. relations. There is no, there is no Ukraine as, as such. Ukraine, there is, you know, Ukraine, a quarter of it is already gone. gone, And uh, who knows where Ukraine will be in the next couple of years, maybe maybe 12 months, maybe 24 months. We have no idea. So Ukraine, so India-Ukraine relations don't matter. That's what I'm trying to say. It's India-US relations that matter. So, yeah, it doesn't matter what the Ukrainians say. Ukrainians say. You have to understand what is being signaled through that. Ukraine is merely a proxy of a larger power, which is the US. Kostub says, what are your thoughts on India's budget allocation to neighbors recently, especially Afghanistan? You said it's a strategic move because we have to deal with the Taliban because of our interest lies in Afghanistan. Considering recent attacks by the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan on various Pakistani institutions, army, etc., all that. See, the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan is separate from the Afghan Taliban that is currently in control of Afghanistan. It's a separate organization. They have had their, their own conflicts and strife. Uh, of course, the overall objective of the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan is to liberate Pashtunistan from Pakistan and, and reintegrate it with Afghanistan. And, and yeah, it's designated as a terrorist organization. The Pakistani military and government, uh, they, they fight it, the Pakistani Taliban and all that. So when we are investing money in Afghanistan, it has nothing to do with the Pakistani Taliban. Right, that's the first thing. So India, uh, let's let's see what uh, how much exactly India is investing. Let's take a look. Do we have it somewhere? Let's let's uh, put that on the screen. Let's go to Khama Press. Give me a second. Let me put that on the screen. All right. So this is an Afghan media outlet. It's called Khama Press. Lots of ads. India announces rupees 200 crore development aid for Afghanistan in budget 2023-24. So as part of India's budget, we have allocated 200 crore rupees for uh, for development aid in Afghanistan. So we're going to use that money to, to uh, undertake development projects in Afghanistan. $25 million, so that's 200 crores. Okay, I don't remember what exactly the conversion is, but that's how it is. So this is the second year that India has continued its support since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. The first announcement was made in last year's budget. The interim government, which means the Taliban government, welcomed India's announcement. We appreciate India's support for Afghanistan's development. It will help to improve ties and trust between the two nations, said Suhail Shaheen, uh, the former IEA negotiations team member. Within the past two decades, most Indian assistant encompasses infrastructure projects, humanitarian assistance, education and capacity development, and small and community-based projects. So none of this money that India is sending to Afghanistan is going to be used to line the pockets of corrupt politicians. It's actually going straight to the grassroots, to the people of Afghanistan. Uh, in addition, New Delhi has repeatedly emphasized historical ties between the two countries and sent wheat and vaccines during COVID-19 pandemic to the people of Afghanistan. Uh, okay, so that's the deal. So we are what we are doing. Does the money that we are allocating in our budget to the to to Afghanistan will benefit the people of Afghanistan? It's going to benefit the grassroots. It's not going to benefit the Taliban, the Afghan Taliban, and it has nothing to do with the Pakistani Taliban, the TTP, the Taliban Pakistan. 
So we are continuing to invest in Afghanistan. And it's going to, uh, it's not going to enrich the Taliban who are ruling the country. It's going to help their family members. The Taliban are what? Pashtuns, right? They're 99% Pashtuns. And their families live all across Afghanistan, in most parts of Afghanistan. This money, this development aid will help them. So yes, the Taliban definitely welcomes this move. It's it's good for Afghanistan. It, it continues our, our friendly and you could say special relationship with Afghanistan. It's a long-term investment. Of course, any money that you send to as, as aid or whatever to another nation, you it there is an element of self-interest also in it. That's simply how geopolitics works. Of course, we have this historical relationship with Afghanistan. It is Gandhar after, after all. It was historically part of India. The people there are our blood relatives. So uh, we are helping them. And the objective is to strengthen the nation. And long term, we want to reconnect with Afghanistan whenever we get our territory back. Temporarily, it's outside. Temporarily, uh, so it's it's a it's a strategic move, but it's a long-term investment in the nation. And of course, we uh, the uh, there is a very serious territorial dispute between Afghanistan and Pakistan. It doesn't matter who is in power in Afghanistan; that territorial dis- dispute persists. And it is the the Afghans rightfully claim uh, that Pashtunistan, which is the northwest frontier province, temporarily of Afghanistan of, of Pakistan, should belong to Afghanistan because it is a Pashtun majority area and Pashtuns have historically, the Pashtun people, ethnicity, have historically lived there for for centuries. So it should actually belong to Afghanistan. Uh, The roots of this conflict obviously go back to the British times when they they, they created the boundary, the Durand line. So yes, that is the situation. Our interest lies in Afghanistan. We would like to see a strong Afghanistan, not a strong Pakistan. Nothing against the people of Pakistan. I have to keep repeating myself. But yes, I have nothing against the people of Pakistan. But the Pakistani government is a terrorist regime. And it needs to be eventually dismantled. And the people of Pakistan, their aspirations need to be fulfilled. Sindh wants independence. Balochistan wants independence. Uh, Pashtunistan wants independence. Punjab, well, we'll see about that. Kashmir, Gilgit, Baltistan, Pakistan, occupied Kashmir. They have been conducting these massive demonstrations Uh Demand, demanding reunification with with uh, with the motherland, with the rest of Kashmir, uh, inside India, not inside Pakistan. So all this is happening, and we have to play this game. It's a long-term game, and that's what India is doing. And India is on the right track when it comes to these matters. Samarth Gandhi says, "What would be the impact of a possible volcanic eruption in Barren Island on the Great Nicobar Islands project?" And India's rise as a major power. Many regions of India are prone to earthquakes. Aren't rising sea levels a major problem for India? What should we do? Okay, lots of questions inside one. Let's talk about the Barren Island. Let's let's go to the map because to understand where Barren Island is, we need to see the map. All right, my favorite thing on the screen, the map. Where's the map? Where's the map? Here's the map. Here it is. Okay, do we all know where Barren Island is? Let's Let's try and locate it. This is the globe. Let's go to the uh, uh, the Bay of Kalinga, and we have the Andaman and Nicobar Archipelago. All right, over here. So we're gonna go to the northern part of this, the Andaman Islands, and now we can see a couple of dots. So India, India has two volcanoes. One is Narkondam, which is a a dormant volcano, or maybe some people would classify it as an extinct volcano, perhaps because it's not erupted in, in like several million years perhaps. So Narkondam is 
either an extinct or a dormant volcano. And the other one is Barren Island, which is an active volcano. So let's see which is which. Which one is this? This is Narkondam. Let's take a look at what it looks like, the topography of the island. So you can see it's it's a volcanic island. You can see the, the volcano, but it's not active. You know, it's it's there is no crater. I mean, there is the remains of a crater, but it's been totally covered over with vegetation and other things because it's been asleep for a very long time. Let's see the other one, Narkondam we dealt with. And let's see Barren Island, which is very different from Narkondam. Okay, let's take a look at that satellite image. All right, here we see a caldera. We can see an actual volcano. And this erupts from time to time on a reasonably routine basis. I think the last time it properly erupted was in 2020. So as far as I know, that we have two volcanoes. One is asleep for a very long time. But this one, Barren Island, is active. It's an active volcano. And it's part of the what we what we call the ring of fire. Do we know what the ring of fire is? Let's me let's let me put that on the screen. One second. Give me a second. Ring of fire. Ring of fire. It is an extremely seismically and volcanically active region. Let's put some images on the screen so that we get to see where it is. The ring of fire. So this is the ring of fire. It's uh, volcanically and seismically active. It's it's all these. Uh, tectonic faults, the Andes and the Rockies in the in the Americas are part of it. Uh, then we have the entire Aleutian Islands chain. Japan is part of that. The Kurun Islands are part of that. Uh, all the way to the Philippines and all the way up to Java, Sumatra, Indonesia and down south up to New Zealand. New Zealand has earthquakes on a pretty routine basis. Uh, and we have major earthquakes in Japan. We have the, the Kobe earthquake and obviously the, nine, uh, the, the 2011 uh, earthquake, which was an absolute disaster, nine point something on the Richter scale, nine point one was it? And uh, to the west, we have the Andamans. We have the Andaman Sumatra earthquake in two thousand and four, which was one of the major, one of the largest, strongest earthquakes ever recorded. I think it is third in the list, I believe, nine point three on the scale. So this is the uh, ring of fire. This is a different image of that. And you can see it extends all the way to the Andamans. So Barren Island is part of that. Now the ring of fire. It has some really major volcanoes. I can think of uh, uh, Krakatau. Today it is Anak Krakatau because the old Krakatau is gone. So Anak Krakatau in Bahasa Indonesia means son of Krakatau. Uh, we have Tambora. So Tambora and Krakatau are, have erupted in the past two, three hundred years extraordinarily massively. Uh, when the Krakatau erupted about in the, in the 19th century, I think, the, the, the sound was heard across the world. Yeah, It sounded like cannon fire in India, that explosion, that, that eruption. Uh, so we have very strong, powerful volcanoes in, the, in this region. So the question, so that is the background to this question that's been asked. Now let's go back to the map. Where is our map? So now the question is the impact of a volcanic eruption in Barren Island on the Great Nicobar Islands project. Well, this volcano keeps erupting and there is no impact unless it goes completely kaboom like Krakatau or Tambora, which it is not likely to do because it, it doesn't have a history of, of violent explosive eruptions. It erupts in, in, a, in a leisurely sedentary manner. Uh, so in and, and let's say the distance between uh, the, see the Great Nicobar Islands project is down south. It's in the island of Great Nicobar. That's the distance between between uh, Barren Island and 
Great Nicobar. Let's measure the distance. Measure distance and go all the way to this place here, somewhere here. That is 600 and approximately 600 kilometers. That's a long distance away. So even if it it erupts reasonably, explosively, the worst that can happen is possibly a tsunami. And that, uh, that too, uh, we're going to most likely uh, build this project in such a way that it will be hopefully sheltered from potential tsunamis. All this will be considered because this region is seismically active. The engineers will definitely bring all this into consideration. So a possible volcanic eruption in Baran Island will not really affect this project much. Uh, yes, many regions of India are prone to earthquakes. We know that. The Himalayan region is very seismically active. India is still slamming into, as, as, as we speak right now, in real time, India is still slamming into the Eurasian uh, plate. And the Himalayas are extremely unstable. Uh, you get earthquakes all the time. We recently had the terrible Nepal earthquake. Uh, a few decades ago, we had an earthquake in Tarkashi, I believe. Kutch has been seismically active for a long time because that is part of that uh, entire process, the, the tectonic plates movement process. So, uh, and in Northeast India, when we come to the far east of India, uh, Nagaland, Manipur, Arunachal, Assam, all that region, there you have earthquakes reasonably frequently there. So that is just something we have to deal with. This is the planet we are born on. This is the region that is ours. We have to adapt to the peculiarities of this region. The Japanese, uh, they deal with it on a routine basis. They have volcanoes that erupt from time to time. They have earthquakes almost weekly or maybe almost daily in Japan. They, they, they just deal with it. So India also has to do about the, to deal with this. We need to ensure that whatever important infrastructure and other projects we're working on, should uh, incorporate elements of earthquake resistance. So that's, uh, I am sure, what the Indian engineers will be doing. They will be keeping all this in mind. Uh, sea levels, yes, it's a problem in, in the long term. Hina says, I recently did an ancestry test. The results were quite bizarre. Apparently, I've got West Asian ancestry as well as Scandinavian, Irish and Finnish ancestry, apart from what they call South Asian. And uh, she has uploaded this on her channel. How accurate are these tests? And so do they prove the so-called Indo-Aryan migration? Let's go to the map and take a look at these regions. West Asia, all that South Asia nonsense, annoying. There's no such thing as South Asia. It's the Indian subcontinent. Anyway, so she has West Asian ancestry, which is... Uh, the Mesopotamia region west of Iran and including today's Iraq, Syria, all that. That's what they call West, west Asia. Uh, so she has some West Asian ancestry as well as Scandinavian ancestry, which means uh, the Nordic nations, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, that region. Also Irish and Finnish. So Ireland is all the way here. This island west of England, that's Ireland. So what, what do these results mean? I'm, I'm assuming that this lady is, is Indian. So why does she have all this West Asian and Scandinavian, Irish and Finnish ancestry? Does this prove that the RN invasion theory is or migration theory is correct? So what they do, the geneticists, is that they assign certain tags to certain lineages. Yeah, There, there is something called uh, Iranian ancestry, in our Iranian hunter-gatherer ancestry. So when this tag is attached to a certain lineage, it's it, it makes uh, the lay person 
feel that that ancestry sprung out of the ground in that place. So when they say you have some a certain percentage of West Asian ancestry, you are made to feel as if that ancestry sprang out of the ground of West Asia. It started there. It did not originate anywhere else. When they say it's Irish ancestry, you will feel like that, uh, that ancestry originated from the soil of Ireland, as if it, it grows on trees <laughs> and finish and all that. See, if you look at the people of Ireland, let's let's take a look at, uh, let's uh, let's just talk about haplogroups, not about the autosomal ancestry uh, and all that. When you look at the uh, Y chromosomal genetics, the patrilineal genetics of Ireland, it is overwhelmingly R1B. Now, R1B is descendant of R1, which most likely has Indian origin. The results uh, still have to be published, but it is most likely going to be Indian ancestry. The work is still going on. It is waiting to be published. R itself, which is the parent of R1 and R2, is of Indian origin. It originated in India. And obviously, the ancestry of that originates in Africa. So, all, as to the best of our knowledge, all human ancestry originated in Africa, there was an out of Africa migration about 80,000, between 80 and 70,000 years before today. And then these people, our ancestors, they migrated along the coastline and eventually ended up in India. And from India, they migrated to various parts of the world. Haplogroup F is the oldest non-African patrilineal lineage. And it is ancestral to all these Irish, Scandinavian, Finnish, West Asian ancestry. Okay, haplogroup F is ancestral to all these other non-African ancestries. That is the patrilineal lineages. When it comes to matrilineal lineages, haplogroups M and N both originated in India about 70,000 years ago, 65,000 years ago. And they are ancestral to 95% plus of non-African female lineages all across the world. So when someone says, you, when your test result says that you have Scandinavian ancestry and all, you have to ask yourself, what is the ancestry of the Scandinavian ancestry? It, it Today you will find it in Scandinavia, but where did it come from? It's now in Scandinavia, but its ancestors came from somewhere else. Well, I can guarantee you 65,000 years ago, its ancestors were in India. And I could I most likely much closer to that. If our if the R lineage originates in India some 20 to 30,000 years ago, it means that the most of the people of Ireland, their ancestry was in India some 20 to 30,000 years ago. That's how it is. So these, this, all this terminology is quite confusing. It is very misleading. Yes. So if you have some West Asian ancestry, some Scandinavian ancestry, some Irish and some Finnish, it means that those genetic components are found in India itself, they are integral to India itself. Because not everybody, see all the people who have, let's say, Irish ancestry, they did not all migrate to Ireland. Some of them would have stayed behind elsewhere in the original place. So they carry those genetics and the some people in the original, in the place of origin also will carry those genetics. And maybe you're one of them. And now they're tagging it as Irish, even though it's, it is, it, it is, uh, something that has originated in India. So that's how it is. These tags that they assign are extremely misleading. I'm not saying they are lying to you, 
it means that most people who have this sort of genetics currently live in Ireland or, or, or Scandinavia or Finland or West Asia. But there is very little research that's been done into India's genetics thus far. What we know is that India has the highest amount of genetic diversity anywhere in the world outside of Africa. And despite that, our, our genetics are more or less uniform, which is a very strange conundrum. It's it's kind of, it kind of reminds you of the cliche of unity in diversity, right? Yeah. So it doesn't mean you have foreign ancestry. It means that India's genetics are incredibly, incredibly diverse and your ancestry comes from various genetic lineages from within India itself, which are correlated, which are related to those foreign lineages, because most likely those foreign lineages originated long, long, long ago in the Indian subcontinent. That is what it means. Shali Malhotra says, Pashtuns are descended from Persians. Okay. All right. If you say so, uh, they were mostly Zoroastrians before Islamization. Pasht okay. That's what you're saying. My mother is a Zoroastrian. Good to know. She looks like Pakistani Pashtun cricketer Miss Baul Haq. Uh, she's not from an ordinary, when he was young, she's not from an ordinary Persian tribe. The Persians are not tribes. Okay, she's not from a whatever she calls Persian tribe, but a noble archaeminid uh, person. Indian Zoroastrians are not from the influential Persian tribes. I'm not sure if there is a question here, but let's take a look at Mr. Misbahulak. Misbah... I remember that guy. Misbahulhark. And let's uh, put that on the screen. So her mom looks uh, like Misbahulhark. Uh, okay, I am sure it's not these images. Do we have a picture of this person when he was younger? Okay, here is a clean-shaven version. Your mom looks like this. Maybe this. Okay. So <laughs> right. Uh, is he Pashtun, this gentleman? I'm not sure. I do remember this guy playing that extraordinary shot in 2007, which gave India the World Cup. Thank you so much, sir. Mr. Misbah. Um, and so on. All right. So let's take this off the screen. It's uh, right. Okay. Your mom looks like him. Maybe when he was younger. Maybe. All right. See, the Pashtuns. We want to understand the, 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 the this entire uh, comment is about Pashtuns. Uh, your mom is okay. So Russian. All right. Uh, let's let's take a look at the uh, the genetics of the Pashtuns. Let's do that. Let's uh, find it. Let's Google it and all that. There must be some um, genetic studies. Let's find one from PLOS One. And let's put that on the screen. All right. This is a research paper from 2012, about a decade old. Afghanistan's ethnic groups share a Y-chromosomal heritage structured by historical events. All right, all right, all right. That's fine. Let's search for India. This. Uh, this is the introduction, which is all good and all fine. Bactrians and Parthians and Indians of the Mauryan dynasty, all that. Greeks and Indians and all that, etc., etc. Pakistan, Balochistan, North India, West India. Uh, Mm. Right. So here, look, look here. 
we are looking at the results. It says haplogroups autochthous means or uh, native to India, L M twenty H M sixty nine R two A etc. were found more in Pashtuns and Tajiks than in Uzbeks and Hazaras. So Pashtuns typically have twenty percent of these three haplogroups. Twenty percent of Pashtuns have these uh, have these three, one of these three haplogroups. Uh, and then Uzbeks also have significant percentage. Oh, sorry, Tajiks also have about 20%. Tajiks are supposed to be Persian origin people, but there you go. They have Indian origin. 20% is not a whole lot. Uh, here we see that uh, more details about the structure of Afghanistan population shows that the Afghan Pashtun and Tajik are closer to North and West Indians than to other Afghans, Hazara and Uzbeks. The Tajiks and Pashtuns are much closer to Northern Indians and Western Indians. Uh, then the other Afghan people, what else? Uh, so, uh, there is a significant affinity between Pashtun, Tajik, North Indian and West Indian populations, creating an Afghan Indian population structure that excludes Hazaras, Uzbeks and South Indian Dravidians because of, okay, interesting. In addition, gene flow to Afghanistan from India was marked by these three lineages that we spoke about before and all that. So and this is interesting. In addition, the three Afghans that identified their ethnicity as Arab had lineages that were native to India. Well, I think this uh, this is seen in Afghanistan, not only in Pakistan as having as wanting a foreign daddy, but also in Afghanistan. So they are claiming that they are Arabs, but their lineages were Indian, right? So the Pashtuns are not descended from Persians. Let me correct you. I just showed you some evidence of that. There is a lot more. You can do your own research if you are able to read genetics papers. Pashtuns are not descended from Persians. Pashtuns are part of the extended northern Indian population. The city of Kandahar, a thousand years ago, was known as a, as a city of Rajputs. So that's the deal. Uh, your mom may look like uh, Miss Bahulak. And see, the Persians themselves are descended from Indians. So there's going to be a similarity in looks. The, the standard Persian person has brown eyes and dark hair and light brown skin. So lots of Pakistanis and Indians look like that. Um, so that's what I have to say that Pashtuns are not descended from Persians. Persians are Pashtuns are part of the extended population of northern and western India. That's what Pashtuns are. Yurk says, I'm from a real Turkish tribe who came in with the Seljuks in the 13th century, into Turkey, I'm, I'm assuming. I have physical traits nearly the same as this man, this man. And also the accent is very near. Hmm? You have an accent like mine, you look like me. <laughs> I also had interest in, interest in Buddhism and my haplogroup is LM27L1A. Am I a Pashtun? Interesting. So this gentleman, Yuruk, looks like me, nearly the same as me, <laughs> accent also like me. That's interesting. So let's let's take a look at this haplogroup LM27L1A. I think it's a, it's, it's a daughter haplogroup of LM20. LM20. Okay, let's go to Wikipedia. Statutory warning, Wikipedia is not always reliable, often unreliable when it comes to Indian history even Indian genetics. But let's take a look at it all the same for the sake of convenience. Haplogroup LM20. 
So Yuruk says his haplogroup is LM27, L1A. Let's see, LM20. There we are. LM27, L1A1. Yes. It is a daughter haplogroup of LM20. Now let's understand what LM20 is. This is where LM20 is found. It is found in India, in the Indian subcontinent, somewhat north of India, because that was part of extended India. And then you can see its offshoots west of India, including uh, to some extent Persia, including in Kurdistan, in Syria, in, in Anatolia, in Turkey, in Italy, in Spain, and all the way into the British Isles, and also in the north. Significant amount of it is found in the uh, Arabian Peninsula. And you will also see some of it in so Sumatra, Java, etc., where Indians have been. So clearly, this is an Indian origin haplogroup. Uh, possible time of origin, 30 to 43,000 years. Uh, it is a descendant of all this. According to Dr. Spencer Wells, LM20 is hypothesized to have originated in, in India about 30 or so thousand years ago. Other people have said that it's a, there may be a West Asian origin, all that. Genetics is all confusion like this, all kinds of different competing claims. Most likely the origin or the place of origin is India. It's about between 30 and 43,000 years old. So if Yuruk, you have this haplogroup, it means that you have Indian ancestors. That's what it means. So you are not, a, yeah, Afghanistan definitely has a significant amount of this, a percentage of this, but the origin is in, in, in the Indian subcontinent and Peninsular India, most likely. So it doesn't mean you're a Pashtun. It means that you have Indian ancestry. You may, and you look look, look like me and you have an accent like me. That's, that's nice to know. So yeah, it means that you have Indian ancestry, most likely. Okay, Puya Mizo says, Chibai, Chibai, sir. Chibai, uh, what are your thoughts on Mizoram Strait? It's history and it's culture. And also, I'm a huge admirer of your work. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. And would really love to see you coming to Mizoram and other Northeast states. I would love to come there. I do go there from uh, once in a while. Uh, have I been to Mizoram? I think I uh, I haven't actually stepped, put my put foot on the, the, the soil, the territory of Mizoram. But I have landed in Aizol Airport. I remember a hair-raising experience. You want to look at the, the airport? Let's Let's do that. So I have passed through, you could say, it's all, you know, a transit kind of flight. Let's go to the maps. I hope everyone knows where Mizoram is. Let's go to the far east of India, south of Manipur and Nagaland, south of Manipur and Tripura, and west of Burma. And yeah, it has a border with uh, Bangladesh also. So this is Mizoram. As you can see, this is the state of Mizoram. The capital is Aizol. I have once passed through Aizol. I was on the plane. I did not get off. But yes, it was very scary. Because if you see Aizol, there's an airport somewhere nearby. It is uh, here we have. We have this airport here. It's, it's between two hill ranges. Whoa, hair raising. Very scary experience landing there. Uh, right. So what do I make? What are, what are my thoughts about Mizoram state? I think it's a wonderful place. Uh, the culture is very interesting, very rich, very unique culture. Uh, I, I know that there are these harvest festivals there. More than one harvest festival marked by festivities. There is the bamboo dance. Uh, the, the gentlemen, say they squat on the ground and they uh, move the bamboo poles around and the ladies, they dance around that. It's a very interesting uh, 
tradition that exists there. The cuisine is interesting. I don't think the cuisine is as spicy as that what you would find in Nagaland or Manipur. Uh, but yes, uh, definitely interesting cuisine. Lots of non-veg items in the cuisine. Uh, so I think Mizoram is wonderful. There is this nice sporting culture also. I think Manipur is the sporting superpower in the Far East, but Mizoram also you will find uh, footballers who come from Mizoram who play in the various Indian sporting leagues and all that. So uh, I think it's a wonderful place. I, I would encourage uh, the people from the rest of India and the rest of the world to uh, to explore Mizoram and overall the, the Far East of India, the other states as well. Uh, and it will certainly, it will be a great experience because it's, it's a beautiful place. It will also help the local economy. So I would encourage everyone to do that. I would love to come someday to Mizoram and actually visit the state properly instead of just touching and going off. So yeah. I would love to do that. And thank you very much for uh, your very kind words. Uh, Daniel Nicholson says, why does India use a single time zone despite spanning across two time zones from east to west and vice versa? What would be the pros and cons of India using two time zones instead of only one? So I would say that India needs three time zones. Let's go to the map. Where is the map? <clears throat> Here's the map. Uh, so each perfect time zone, I believe, is is 15 degrees. How much? What is the distance of the equator? 15 degrees. I'm not quite sure. Maybe close to a thousand kilometers. Maybe 800 kilometers. Not sure, but it's 15 degrees. Now the time zones are aren't perfect. They are they're, they're spread across countries. There there are straight lines and all. So India uses only one time zone. China uses only one time zone, which is even wider than India. So I see if you. If you look at uh, Pakistan, which is north of Gujarat, it, it has a time zone that's about half an hour after Indian Standard Time. Then I believe Kyrgyzstan also has the same sort of thing, that sort of time. If you go to uh, Bishkek, Bishkek time will be half an hour uh, after India, later than India. If you go to, uh, let's say, Bhutan or Bangladesh, the time if you, is, I would say, most likely half an hour ahead of Indian time. You go to Kolkata, the sun sets very early. You know, sunset is very early compared to, let's say, a place like Mumbai. If you go to Aizal or, or, or Imphal or Kohima, or if you go to Arunachal Pradesh, then you will find that, that, uh, the, that the sun rises maybe 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m., which is at least a couple of hours before what it what the sunrise time is in a place like uh, New Delhi or Mumbai, and the sun sets also at least a couple of hours before the sun sets in Western India. I would say that India needs three time zones, not two. And uh, and you know, in British during when during the British occupation of India, they the city of Chennai was then called Madras. Madras time was half an hour before Bombay time. It's now called Mumbai, we know that, but it was then called Madras and Bombay. So during the British occupation of India, they, they had at least, I think, two time zones in India. Madras time was 30 minutes before Bombay time. That's how it was. That made sense. I don't know why we have then this oversimplification of the entire system. Um, maybe the magnificent Vishri Nehruji thought that Indians are too simple and too stupid to understand time zones. I think it would be a good thing for India that everybody has a time zone that, that's appropriate to their region. I mean, uh, you know, if you go to the north, the far east of India, people have lunch by 10.30 in the morning or so. Or maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. I think 11 o'clock is too late 
for having lunch. And people wake up by, by 4.30 or 5. That's when dawn is. So it would be good for them to have dawn at their 7, 7 a.m. or 6.45 a.m., whatever, whatever is right. And so the pros are that everybody will be able to wake up at the right time and not be stuck to the time zone of central India. Because let's say you want to do some banking transactions and the bank closes, let's say, at uh, 2 p.m. Delhi time. Well, that's... <laughs> uh, so that, that creates problems, you know, because other people have to adjust to this time zone, which is not uh, intrinsically correct for their region. So I would say that India needs three time zones, a western time zone, the western standard time, central standard time, and eastern standard time. The eastern time would apply to uh, Bengal and, and uh, the far east of India, the so-called northeast of India, and maybe to the Andaman and Nicobar archipelago. The western time zone could apply to Gujarat, maybe Maharashtra or Rajasthan. And central time zone could be UP and uh, states like Tamil Nadu, Odisha, and so on. I think there are no cons... It may take, let's say, a week or so for Indians to adjust to this. Indians aren't stupid. Indians understand things. They have good intelligence. So I don't think it's going to confuse people. Maybe for a few days here and there, maybe three days people will be slightly confused. But everybody adjusts to, to new realities. So overall, I would say it will be good for India. I don't see any significant cons. The pros will be that everybody will be able to function optimally. And the country will... Overall, it will be good for the country. So I think it makes sense for India to have three time zones, not just one or not even two. Three is best. Radio says, what are your thoughts on fusion energy? Is it possible to have working fusion reactors within our lifetimes or will this just become a failed experiment? Fusion. You know, for the longest time, what scientists, what physicists would say is that fusion energy is 50 years in the future. So 50 years ago, they were saying that. Even 10 years ago, they were saying that. It's always 50 years in the future. 50 years in the future. Fusion is just too difficult. There have been claims of, uh, of, of tabletop fusion and all that. But yeah, that, that did not quite work out. Um, but you know what? Things are changing now. Now, I know some people who, who say that fusion is, is, is going to... It's going to become a thing in just within a decade. That is not correct. Very recently, I came across a, a physicist who said that. Uh, so what is the deal right now with fusion? I think fusion is a very promising technology. And re just recently, we have actually achieved ignition. Not we, it's the Americans who have achieved ignition. What is ignition? So there are two kinds, two ways, mostly, to uh, try and achieve fusion. One is a magnetic confinement, which means that you use magnetic, very strong magnetic field to confine a plasma in a specific region inside your inside a machine called a tokamak, T-O-K-A-M-A-K, tokamak, and that that thin plasma, diffuse plasma, you can if you if you make it energetic enough, hot enough, and you confine it properly enough, then maybe that will give rise to fusion, and then you can have a sustained fusion reaction uh, at a low level. The other way of doing it is inertial. So that is the magnetic confinement. The other way of doing it is inertial confinement, in which you have a pellet of light elements, mostly hydrogen and helium and helium-3 
light elements, very small pellet of it. It has to be almost perfectly spherical, very small pellet. And you bombard that pellet from all sides with laser beams. It has to be done in a, in a very precise manner. And if you can do it properly, then theoretically, that all that laser light will will uh, will bombard enough energy into that little pellet and and cause fusion. It'll cause a pellet to to undergo fusion. And what is ignition? Ignition is when the energy that you are inputting into this thing is less than the energy that comes out of the fusion reaction. That is ignition. So thus far, they have been trying and trying and trying, and the energy that they are throwing into the pellet is always way, way more than the energy that comes out of, of the of the reaction in the pellet. So there is the magnetic confinement and there is inertial confinement. So recently, in uh, Lawrence Livermore, uh, let, let's let's find the fusion breakthrough article. Let me put that on the screen. So recently, what happened is that they achieved ignition, which means that the energy that came out of the fusion reaction was greater than the energy that was that was put into the pellet. I think the uh, how much energy did they put in? I think two point zero five megajoules, and the energy that came out was three point one five megajoules or kilojoules. I don't remember. Uh, most likely kilojoules. So 3.15 is greater than 2.05, which means they have achieved ignition for the first time. Fusion breakthrough is a milestone for climate and clean energy. Uh, and so on. So this is the, uh, yes, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. That's where this happened. A major breakthrough, the first time it's ever happened. So this is an article from 2022, 20, last year, December 14. That's when it was announced. The fusion ignition is one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. It will go down in the, in the history books. I agree. It will definitely go down in the history books. Uh, so yeah, they've been trying to do this for a very, very, very long time. The Chinese are, are they have this uh, uh, artificial sun experiment, which I believe is a tokamak, magnetic confinement. India doesn't do any of these things for, for whatever, whatever reason. So, uh, so yes, they have now achieved ignition. The energy they shot into the pellet was exceeded by the energy that came out of it. So that is ignition, which means the concept works. Now, the more energy you slam into that thing, the more energy will come out of it. Uh, so it's been achieved. So the theory has been uh, proven to be correct in practice. But that is, see, what they have done is uh, inertial confinement. In inertial confinement, the energy comes out in a single burst. Boom! And it's gone. In magnetic confinement, the energy can be pulled out. It, it comes out more gradually, the fusion rea reaction energy. So when you do magnetic confinement, it's essentially an explosion. Very tiny explosion, fusion reaction. And all the energy comes out in a single burst or a single pulse. And then the challenge is how do we store that energy? Because, you know, we have to capture that energy and store it in some form. But that is the big challenge. So we are still a very long distance away, a long way away from a proper fusion reactor that can output energy on demand in a predictable manner. We are not there yet. We have just achieved ignition once. Maybe they may have tried it a few more times. I'm not sure. But this is this is just the demonstration. Of the, this is just the proof of, proof of concept. Uh, to harness that energy and create a reactor, 
uh, that can store, that can output the energy repeatably, predictably, uh, is going to be the big engineering challenge. But engineers are good. Engineers can solve most of the challenges. I would say we are still at least 20 years away from a working fusion reactor. And that too will be an experimental prototype reactor. For this to become a proper technology that you can start using to power cities and towns and and countries will take more than 20 years. Hopefully, I am pretty optimistic that within my lifetime, I'll be able to see a working, you know, working fusion reactors that become commercially available. But uh, it's most likely not going to be possible in the near to long medium term future to have a fusion reactor that powers your home. That is not yet uh, going to be possible. Maybe in the next 50 years, perhaps. Maybe in 100 years. So most likely by the end of the 21st century, we're going to have such reactors that can possibly power your own house or maybe a mini reactor that can power your car or your plane or whatever. So there's a huge amount of potential in this. I don't know why India is not, not doing anything about this. I don't know why. India, I don't know. There is a certain lack of ambition that you see in India, which, which given the incredible intelligence and potential of the Indian people is very disappointing. So yes, uh, all, all this is kind of, we, we can do more. That's what I would say. Swapnil Mishra says, a unique celestial event, the green comet is coming. What is it and where is it? How is a comet formed and how does it end? The green comet is not coming. It's already come. I think the closest approach and the best time for viewing was February 1. Today is February 9. So we are at least a week past that uh, particular event. I think right now the comet is visible through binoculars. I don't think it's a visible eye, naked eye comet. Uh, yeah, it's been a while since we had a comet that you could see with the naked eye. As a kid... When I was a kid, I remember I witnessed two comets in two years, in 96 and 97. 96 was Hyakutake, Comet Hyakutake. And 97 was Comet Hale-Bopp. These are two of the great comets, you know, very large visible comets. I believe uh, Hale-Bopp was greenish, greenish bluish. And Hyakutake was also very big and visible in the night sky. You could see it with the naked eye. You You don't need a telescope or binoculars. It was right there in front of you. So I, wit- I was very fortunate to witness these two comets as a kid in 1996 and 1997. And Hyakutake was discovered by a gentleman, a Japanese gentleman called Hyakutake, who discovered two comets in a week. The first one was never quite visible. The second one was a big one. Uh, so, uh, so this this green comet is not, I think the best time to see it was on February 1. Uh, now you may need binoculars and I'm sure you can use some uh, app. What is it called? Stellarium app or something to pinpoint where it will be in the night sky. I'm sure I can pull up a space.com article. I like space.com. They have good articles. What are they saying? Space.com. Greed. Comet. See, here we are. Let's me very rapidly put it on the screen. What do they, what do they have to say about this? <clears throat> Okay, this was published 21 hours ago. The location of the comet near the red planet should make it relatively easy to find. But you will need aid, optical equipment, telescope or binoculars. So if you know where Mars is, I'm sure it's pretty easy to locate in a dark sky. Mars is very visible. It's red. We know where it is. I mean, I hope you know where it is, if you know what you're doing. So it's it's close to that. 
So this comet will be positioned close to Mars in the Taurus constellation, making it easier as it dims as it speeds away from Earth. The comet will appear beside the red, red planet from February 9 through February 14. So if you want to see, that's where you will find it. You can use that Stellarium or whatever software on your, it's an app. I think it's an app on, on your phone that you can use. I'm sure it's free if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to use it. But you can locate Mars in the comet using that app. Uh, yeah, so that's what you can do. Now, the other part of the question is, uh, is how is the comet formed and how does it end? So this comet, this green comet that is currently passing through the inner solar system, the last time it was visible from Earth, was I think around 50 or 60,000 years ago. It's a very long period comet. It's got this very eccentric, squashed, very long orbit. So it circles around the sun once in about 50 or 55 or 60,000 years. One of the most famous comets is Halley's Comet. It has a period of about 76 years. So that's a very, even that is too long for us. You will say if you're fortunate twice in your lifetime, not more than that. Um, I wanted to see it in 85, but I was a little kid and uh, that com Halley's Comet was not quite visible. Uh, so how how is a comet formed? There is something called the Oort Cloud around the sun. It's, it's, it's way far ahead from us, outside the orbit of Pluto. Let's let's see what the Oort Cloud looks like, a representation of that Oort Cloud. It's it's a giant, massive, enormous cloud of of these icy bodies. Uh, here we are. Hey, very small. Make it larger. Embiggen it. Here we are. So we know where the sun is. The sun is at the very center of this thing. And you have Earth, Mars, A, blah, blah, blah. The Earth-Sun distance is called one astronomical unit. Saturn is at 10 AU from the sun, 10 astronomical units. Uh, the termination shock is 10 raised to 2, 100 astronomical units. Uh, so it's essentially past the terminal uh, termination shock in the interstellar medium, but it's still something that orbits the sun. So uh, maybe 10 raised to 4 astronomical units away from the sun all the way, almost to the next star, almost. This is the logarithmic scale, so it's not quite to the next star, but it's enormously far away from the sun. It's this huge cloud of icy objects, mostly destroyed ancient uh, asteroids, maybe planets that were destroyed a long, 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 long ago, uh, maybe just rocky debris that were part of the uh, protostellar cloud that gave rise to the sun and the solar system. Maybe some of these objects are left over from the death of an older star, the previous incarnation of the sun, which spewed out this gas cloud which then eventually coalesced into the, into the solar system. So these are very far away objects. It's rubble. It's rubble, pieces of rock mixed with uh, organic material like carbon and uh, things like that, and ice. There's a lot of water there. Uh, so a comet is something that originates from here. Something sometimes happens and disturbs the objects, the orbits of these old cloud objects. And um, then they make their way towards the sun. And once they reach close to the sun, because of the solar wind, the radiation, the radiation pressure, the comet heats up and starts releasing gas and dust. And that's how it acquires this long tail. 
and because of the sunlight and the radiation, this long tail starts glowing, and that's why it looks like a star with a tail from from Earth. So it 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 is a it is it has a coma a tail only when it is in the inner solar system close to the sun. Once it goes away, the tail also fades away and disappears. So that is how a comet is formed. There are trillions, possibly, or billions of comets, potential comets lurking out there in the Oort cloud. Once in a while, this thing is disturbed, and one of these things makes it its way towards the inner solar system. And that's how a comet is formed. How does a comet end? Well, sometimes a comet ends when it is followed up by a planet. Uh, there was the great uh, Shoemaker-Levy comet, right? Let me put that on the screen. Shoemaker-Levy 9. So this was a comet that slammed into Jupiter. First, of, What first happened is that the gravity of Jupiter tore the comet into pieces. So you can see those pieces of the comet and they're all glowing and they all have tails. That's what the incredible gravity of Jupiter did to this, to this comet. And then in the next pass, the comet slammed into Jupiter. Piece by piece by piece. Slam, 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 slam. This happened, I don't know, 94? Yes. It was an incredible event. You could see the Earth astronomers captured this in these images. You can see the major scars on Jupiter where it's been bombarded, where it's been hit by the comet. So that's one way of a comet dying. It, it being it hitting a, a planet. So Jupiter, we saw this happen. Maybe the Chukchilov impact event on Earth, which killed off the non-avian dinosaurs, maybe that could have been a comet, which was trying to make its way to the sun, but found the Earth in the way and blam, slammed into the Earth. So, may, so Earth may have, uh, you know, received multiple cometary impacts in the past. Another way of this happening is that the comet is followed by the sun. It, it uh, passes too close to the sun's surface. It gets torn up and then it, it, it gets absorbed by the sun. That is a possibility. Or eventually it, it goes through... It makes those cycles thousands of times, millions of times, eventually loses all its material and maybe it just fades away. So these are, these are some of the ways in which a comet could end or ends, right? Abhinav says, uh, thank you, sir. My only request would be that this question is for my grandmother who gives me lots of gyan, knowledge. But I had a question which got me thinking and okay. Trees and plants, no matter where they are growing, mountains, beaches, valleys, plains, etc., all grow in an upright position. Yes, more or less upright. Uh, why is this the case? A tree growing on a hill, which is inclined at an angle, still would have trees growing upright. Correct. She questioned me and I had no answer to give. All right, so why does this happen? Uh, see, all the plants and trees and animals and various species that you have today, on the planet have reached this stage, this form through evolution. Evolution is the survival of the fittest. So let's say in the past you had certain trees that were not adapted to standing straight and they would be tilted. Now if, if a tree is tilted at an angle, it is extremely disadvantageous for the tree for survival because if you are completely straight, then you are balanced. Gravity acts on both sides, on all sides, and you are balanced. And the center of gravity is the tree trunk. So, and, and trees have roots, plants have roots, which go into the soil and, and anchor the tree into the soil. So, if you are standing straight, completely straight, then you are at gravitational equilibrium. The forces of gravity align properly, and the center of mass is right in the tree trunk, which means you have a great chance of living out a very long and healthy life as a tree as long and healthy as a tree can be. 
So if a tree is aligned straight, then it lives a long life. It has a higher chance of passing on its genetic material to future generation, generations. Now, if a tree has the kind of genetics that make it uh, uh, stand at an angle, then with if, if there's rainfall, then the roots may not be able to hold up to the, to the soil properly, and the tree may simply get uprooted and, and, and collapse on one side, and then it dies. Or maybe there's a storm, just a gentle storm, nothing massive, that will also end the tree's life. So I am sure in the past, certain trees would have evolved, you know, genetic mutations that caused this to happen. Well, those trees are not around to pass on their genetic, uh, genetic material because those trees died out. So those genes that may have been responsible for such characteristics, those genes were weeded out by the process of evolution. Only the fittest survive. So uh, that's why these trees, they also have DNA. Their DNA is programmed to make them stand straight because that is the most advantageous trait for long term that ensures the survival, long term survival of the species. Every species wants to survive. It wants to weed out the, tra the genetic traits that are harmful to its long term survival. Right? So uh, most likely that's what happened. It is a process of, of evolution that has ensured that no matter where a tree or a plant is, whether it is on a beach or on a hillside or a mountainside, it always grows straight. It is something that's been programmed into the, into the DNA of trees and plants through the process of natural selection evolution. Samarth says, have we ever recorded a meteorite falling into the ocean carrying alien biomolecules, Ooh, aliens or microorganisms? Oh my God, so scary. Bacteria, viruses, etc. Strange life forms. Have we ever recorded this? Hundreds of meteorites enter the earth every year. Can't this be a potential threat in the form of a known alien species invasion, which we, we may consider just a new species as we haven't explored the oceans as well? All right. So as far as I can recall, the Earth receives between 20 to 50 to 60, maybe 80 tons of meteorite debris every day. Every day, maybe between, between 20 to 50 tons. A ton is a thousand kilograms. So 20 to 50 tons per day. That's the amount of meteorite uh, material that falls onto the surface of the Earth every single day. Much of it goes into the oceans because oceans cover two-thirds of the Earth's surface. Uh, we have recovered thousands of meteor meteorite samples which are found in uh, scientific uh, labs and uh, museums across the world. We have some in India as well. Um, and thus far, we have, we have been able to classify several kinds of meteorites. Um, we have carboniferous chondrites, we have stony meteorites, we have uh, ferrous meteorites containing uh, iron and various other metals. So there are certain various classes of meteorites. The carboniferous meteorites often contain organic chemicals, amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. And protein is what you have in your in your muscles, in your, much of your body. Uh, so you do find organic chemistry that's present on meteorites. You find it quite regularly. Uh, but we have never thus far 
discovered a meteorite that contains alien biomolecules or microorganisms. That would be frightfully scary. It would be a breakthrough which we have never seen before. None of the meteorite samples we have ever collected and studied has ever had any life form on it. Of course, we have this the famous uh, meteorite which came from Mars, which, which is a Mars rock which was which ended up on Earth, which uh, seems to have that that uh, fossilized bacteria-like structure. Let's take a look at it. Uh, Mars meteorite bacteria. ALH something, that thing is called ALH something, something, something. Uh, let's see what that is. What is the deal with that? So this is what it looks like when you do, when they took an electron microscope uh, image, they saw these tubular structures, which look like bacteria, that which look like very much like uh, bacteria that you find on Earth. There you go. It's a tubular structure, which is very much characteristic of a, a bacillus type bacteria. We have certain very evil bacteria on Earth, which uh, are broad shaped. So yes, that's what you see. But there is, we still don't have conclusive evidence that this is indeed fossilized bacteria. It looks like that, but there are alternative explanations that have been put forth. And even if this is bacteria, it is fossilized bacteria. These are not alive. These are not live bacteria. It is definitely possible that Mars could have had life in the past. Mars was once a warm and very wet planet. We know that. It's quite possible that Mars may have had life in the past. And this uh, sample did come from Mars. It originated in Mars. So it's possible. But we don't have a conclusive 100% incontrovertible evidence that this represents, uh, you know, dead bacteria. So the answer to your question is, no, we have never recorded any of these things, either alien biomolecules or microorganisms. If it happens, it will be red alert. Well, let's see how that goes. It's never happened before. Stuti says, please explain Operation Northwoods. Very interesting. People are discovering interesting information. Operation Northwoods. Uh, it's the name that's given to this uh, a proposed false flag operation. that was proposed by the CIA in the U.S., uh, to give the United States the pretext to go to war with Cuba. It was, I think, in 1962. So at that time, uh, President Kennedy was in power. John F. Kennedy, he was the president at the, at the time. The CIA came up with this proposal that let's uh, attack U.S. infrastructure and aircraft, shoot down a few aircraft, kill some people, uh, kill you know, destroy some infrastructure, shoot down some ships, uh, hit some ships with whatever, and make it look like the, and, and, and pretend like it's, it's the Cubans that have done this. Then that, that will give us the justification to go to war with Cuba. So that's what was proposed. America attacking America itself. The United States attacking its own assets, maybe taking a few lives in the process, just to acquire the pretext to go to war with Cuba. And President Kennedy flat out rejected this. He said, I am not giving you the go-ahead for this. We know what happened to President Kennedy not so soon after that. Let's let's see if I can Google this up. Operation Northwoods. 
I'm sure there's a nice Wikipedia article waiting for us. <laughs> Let's see. Give me a second. Yes, the Wikipedia article. As always, please remember, Wikipedia is not entirely trustworthy, but this is about the US, so I'm sure it, and well, let's see. So Operation Northwoods was a proposed false flag operation against American citizens that originated within the US Department of Defense in 1962. The proposals called for CIA. Okay, it, it came from the Department of Defense, not from the CIA, but the CIA would carry it out. So the proposals called for CIA operatives to both stage and commit acts of violent terrorism against American military and civilian targets blaming them on the Cuban government and using it to justify a war against Cuba. You also may have heard of the Bay of Pigs invasion, which is something that the, the American deep state proposed. Kennedy said, no, I will not agree to this. And then they went ahead with this, an invasion of Cuba using Cuban expatriates. And then once they, they thought that uh, this will force President Kennedy's hand, and once the invasion happens, then he will agree to give uh, Air Force and other support to this. And Kennedy refused this, refused to give it. That's why the Bay of Pigs invasion failed. It was a disaster. And soon after, I am not saying causation implies correlation, but soon after these things, uh, Kennedy was assassinated. Um, so yes, that is this this uh, information about Operation Northwoods is available in the public domain. For whatever reason, they have declassified some of it. Now imagine the stuff that must be still classified and top secret. If this is something they thought is okay to declassify, imagine the things that they have not declassified. You know, truth can be often much stranger than fiction. So that's what, in a nutshell, Operation Northwoods was. Rodrajit Sarkar says most of the Cold War related books mention the Cold War era, Eastern European countries, as, as Soviet satellite states. But they don't mention the Western European states as US satellite states not even the Indian books. It's understandable from the Western authors, but why do the Indian authors do the same? What's their interest? <laughs> this is a good question. This is a good question. Yes, they speak about the Soviet satellite states, the Eastern European nations, Poland and Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia and so on, and Romania, Bulgaria, and you know, you know how it is, the Warsaw Pact countries. So any textbook, any any history book, any non-fiction book that you pick up, which mentions this this era, will call these nations Soviet satellite states. But when it comes to Europe, the, the Western European nations, they will not use such terminology. The fact is that the Western European nations, those that are part of the EU and NATO, are US satellite states. You know, in the aftermath of World War II, which ended in 1945, there was a very clear balance of power in Europe. Uh, the major fighting had been done by the Soviets, but at the end of the day, when almost everything was getting over, the Americans came in and they liberated what they call what is Western Europe. Uh, and their armed forces, their military was stationed in various parts of Western Europe. And eventually it is the Soviets who entered Berlin. Uh, Adolf Hitler is said to have committed suicide, apparently. And, and then we had the division of Europe into the Soviet-controlled areas and the US-controlled areas. So what the Americans essentially did is that they created a buffer zone in Europe, which is Western Europe, which came under their sway. So most of the entirety of the NATO nations and the EU nations are, you could say, American satellite states or vassal states, which means that their foreign policy 
economic policy and to some extent internal policy is controlled or 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 influenced strongly by the us especially the foreign policy especially the defense foreign policy and to some to a significant extent the economic policy the internal affairs they will most likely let it be like they will have a hands hands a hands off approach as far as long as it does not uh, uh, conflict with american interests so that is the situation the americans created a buffer zone they were afraid that the soviet union would uh, expand across all of europe and that they found it very uh, very dangerous so that's why they took these very strong robust measures to to create a barrier beyond which the ussr could not advance which was the western european nations now it is understandable why the western authors will write about it in this manner they will call the eastern european nations soviet satellite states but they will call the western european nations as free nations which is fiction the us has nuclear weapons on the on the territory of various western european nations do the people want those nukes there i am i'm not sure uh, of course you can also manipulate public opinion uh, but it is the case that uh, the americans have a permanent military presence in germany permanent military occupation of germany and italy also and lots of other nations in western europe so yes from these perspectives it's essentially the same as the situation that was in western europe during the cold war so the western european nations are indeed us satellite states uh, the thing is in india we only read books written in english and the books written in english will have the uh, us version of how things are if you were to read books written by let's say russian or soviet authors then you would see a very different world view which would of course be also the correct world view why do indian authors do the same because the indian authors don't think i'm not saying the newer authors don't think i'm sure there are good authors coming up nowadays but historically if you wanted to publish a book you had to go through gate gatekeepers who would ensure that the right version of the world is put forth in the books and if you say if you write something that doesn't gel with that world view you will not get published no matter what you do so that is why indian authors do the same but i'm sure nowadays if somebody were to write a book about uh, the history the, the the history of the period of the cold war they you would see a different perspective perhaps i have not come across any such thing thus far but maybe rahul says what's the importance of kaliningrad for russia me interesting question kaliningrad let's let's find the map let's let's pull out the map where is kaliningrad that's an interesting exclave of russia russia all right so where is kaliningrad let's go to the map we know where russia is so during the cold war we had a larger entity called the ussr the union of soviet socialist republics and the baltic nations estonia latvia and lithuania were part of the ussr minsk uh, i mean belarus also was part of it in ukraine also moldova was also part of that now we have this territory here southwest of lithuania if i click there it says some uh, district kaliningrad oblast russia and the, the, the this port city here is kaliningrad this entire territory is called kaliningrad so this is a russian exclave it is not connected to mainland russia it used to be part of the ussr 
So uh, what is the import? So how did um, how did it become an ex- it become an exclave? So after the dissolution of the USSR, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia declared their independence, so did Belarus and so on. But this region remained with Russia. It's just uh, how things went. Now, what is the importance? You can see that this is maybe Russia's only, definitely Russia's only port uh, on the Baltic, Baltic Sea. So it gives Russia a window and, uh, and a staging post for operations, naval operations, maybe maritime operations, merchant operations in the Baltic Sea region. It is always great to have territory that uh, encompasses a uh, very diverse kind of um, diverse geographical regions. So uh, this is a very major port and there are other ports also that helps Russia with its trade activities. It also helps Russia with its military naval activities. And uh, so that is the primary significance. Russia also has a significant military non-naval presence in Kaliningrad. Uh, I think they have Iskander missiles and various ballistic missiles deployed there. I'm sure they will have airstrips and airports here, which can be used by the Russian Air Force. And uh, so it is extremely advantageous for Russia to possess this this territory, this exclave that gives them all these advantages, these ports, these airfields. So that is the importance of Kaliningrad for Russia. Garvit Singh Chauhan says, where did the original inhabitants of Australia, the non-whites, originate from? Uh, Do you believe that they traveled using boats or did they get there as a result of the continental drift that led to the formation of Gondwana land? We get these questions, I I see these questions very often. Now, I understand that our teachers do a terrible job of teaching us history, which is why this sort of confusion is very common to see. So let me explain what the deal is. Continental drift happens over tens of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. Understand the time scale and the chronology. Continental drift. Let's say the, the, the drift of India the Indian subcontinent, which was once attached to Africa, how did it end up in Eurasia? Well, plate tectonics and continental drift made India detach itself from from southern Africa and travel all across the Indian Ocean and slam into Eurasia. That process took roughly 120 million years. 120 million years. Gondwana land goes back even before that, maybe 200 plus million years. That's the super, uh, no, Pangaea was there. So continental drift is a process that takes tens of millions of years, maybe hundreds of millions of years. Homo sapiens has been around for 200,000 years, one fifth of a million years. There is no continental drift involved in the time frame of the human species of Homo sapiens. If Homo sapiens had been around for 200 million years, then they would have ridden the continent and drifted around. That's not the case. It's like saying that next week India will will reach Australia through continental drift. It doesn't happen like that. So understand the time scales involved. Continental drift of 100 years is this long from here to here. And the history of humanity is here. This much, this much, tiny, minuscule. 
So it did not happen through continental drift. Please understand that. Understand the time scales. Understand the chronology. Now, then we come to the real question. Where did these original inhabitants, the, the, the so-called Australian Aborigines, where did they originate from? And how did they reach Straya? Straya. Let's go to the map. So the best evidence that we have, the best theory that we have is that humanity, humans, Homo sapiens, originated in Africa. If I find evidence that proves some, that shows something else, I will believe a different theory. Thus far, the best evidence that we have says that humanity originated in Africa. So how did these people end up in Australia? I believe they reached Australia at least 60,000 years ago. At least. Maybe 65, maybe even 70,000 years before, before today. So let's say it's 60,000 years. So how did they reach Australia 60,000 years ago or from such, such a far away distance? So one possibility is that the Australian Aborigines are part of the out of Africa migration. Most likely they are part of the migration that uh, came out of Africa, crossed the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, uh, came into, the, uh, into Iran, moved eastwards and then settled down in India. And from India, they went to other parts of the world. That is one possibility. And then from India, they would have gone uh, eastwards. Uh, and during the Ice Age, or there must have been multiple periods of Ice Ages. So at certain points in time, uh, these islands were a single landmass. And most likely at some point in time, it would have been connected to Australia through a land bridge. So that is a possibility that they did, or, or maybe they would have done, had to do some island hopping uh, using rafts or whatever. And the islands would have been very close by. So it would not have been a very difficult, very perilous journey. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that they actually crossed the sea itself on boats or rafts. And we have this island, right? Uh, they call it Sentinel Island, North Sentinel Island. It's over here. So the people of North Sentinel, Sentinel Island are the last uncontacted tribe. They are a Stone Age tribe, a small group of people who have been living a Stone Age life for at least 30,000 years. So it looks like they were crossing the sea and somehow they got stranded on this island and they have been here for 30,000 years. So such things do happen. So one possibility is that they did island hopping and uh, entered Africa, Australia through a land bridge. The other possibility is that they actually crossed the sea, which is extremely unlikely, actually, because it's a huge distance. Let's say the distance between Madagascar, let's say, and uh, Western Australia. It's six, almost 7,000 kilometers. That, that's almost impossible to cross unless you have very sophisticated navigation and you have very large boats with, with lots of supplies, especially food and water, and then you know how to navigate. So most likely the what happened is they would have taken an easier way out and uh, come through what is now the nation of Indonesia, most likely. So we still don't know exactly when it, how it happened. But uh, the presence of the Australian, uh, the native Australians dates back at least 60, 65,000 years in Australia. That's how long they have been there. Australia belongs to the native Australians. That's, that's their territory. That's their land. Sharma is big says, this question won't apply to most people, but whatever, whatever. 
here in Australia. There's been this controversy over the celebration of Australia Day. Critics say that by celebrating it, we celebrate the beginning of the genocide of perhaps the world's oldest culture. While others say that by having a barbecue or going to the beach, which is how we celebrate the occasion, no one even thinks about all the horrible things that happened on this day. What are your thoughts on this dilemma? Is someone a bad person if they have a barbecue with a friend's family on a public holiday? We also have a National Apology Day for the Stolen Generations and its history His history is taught in the schools now. Let me address the last part first. Australia has a National Apology Day for the Stolen Generations. What happened is that the Australians, they, they stole Aboriginal children from their parents and they made them convert to Christianity and they may, made them marry European origin people. They wanted to dilute out the ethnicity, the race. And they wanted to subsume or absorb the Aborigines into the white population. So they stole several generations of Aboriginal kids from their parents. Imagine the incredible trauma they would have gone through. And they were most likely never reunited with their parents. And that's why you have so many uh, people in Australia who have some Aboriginal ancestry and who may not know about this. There's this uh, cricketer, Scott Boland, who recently came to know that he has Aboriginal ancestry. He thought he was a white person. Yeah, there's Jason Gillespie also. The, so that's what the Australian government did. It was a very racist, very harsh policy for a very long time. Only recently in the late 20th century, they started mending their ways. So now they have a National Apology Day, which is tokenism. And they teach the history in the schools now, which is again tokenism. Have they, have they given any restitution to the affected people? You can't give give any restitution or or uh, recompense or whatever it is to people who are dead but the ones who are the descendants what about them so yeah it's it's very hard to undo the the harms and the wrongs that have been committed several generations ago but this national apology day is still just tokenism there are lots of Aboriginal, pure blood Aboriginal people who live in Australia today. And you will see that alcoholism and crime and suicide are rampant among these populations. And Aboriginal people are much more likely to be shot for no reason by a policeman than a white person. You know, it's very similar to what happens in the US, where a black person is way more likely to be harassed or shot by police people, by policemen, than a white person. So, uh, a token apology day is nothing. The fact is that the uh, the Aboriginal people still face discrimination, marginalization, and oppression even today. Uh, their lands have been taken away. The prime lands in Australia are the coastal lands, the eastern and southern coast of Australia. Let's go to the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. See, the prime territory in Australia is these green regions. Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Tasmania, there are no none left. They have all been murdered. <laughs> so all the prime lands have been taken over by the settlers, the colonialists and their descendants. And the majority of the Aboriginal population lives in the outback, the very uh, hot, dry, arid interior parts of Australia. So they're still marginalized. Now, see, most nations, they celebrate Independence Day. India celebrates Independence Day. The US celebrates Independence Day. Pakistan has its own temporary Independence Day. And you know how it is. Every nation has an Independence Day. Australia celebrates the day of its colonization. Australia Day is, it, it, 
it commemorates the, the beginning of the colonization of Australia, which triggered off the horrific genocide of the native Australians. Now, the question, the, the ethical or moral dilemma is that should you celebrate this day or not? Now, most people who live in Australia today, they have done, most of them would have done nothing to the Aboriginal people. Most of, many of them would not be even, like, they may not even know an Aboriginal person. And most of them, most likely, hopefully, would not even wish any harm to the Aboriginal people. But that doesn't stop them from enjoying the fruits of the oppression and the colonialism. They live in these wonderful parts of Australia where the climate is great, it's cool, it's, you know, it's, it's temperate, cool, lots of vegetation, while the Aboriginal people are made to live in the outback, many of them, Kalgoorlie, what not the names are, Alice, Alice, Alice Springs, very hard places to live in. And uh, like I said, the, the Australian Aboriginal people face, face a lot of oppression, while the descendants of the colonialists don't. Even though they may not wish any harm to the Aboriginal people, they are still enjoying the fruits of the colonization. There are lots of people in Europe who wish India no harm, but that doesn't stop them from enjoying the fruits of the plunder of India. That's the thing. Uh, so I don't think it's a bad, you are a bad person just because you have a Barbie and you have a few pints of VB or Fosters or whatever on that day. But directly or indirectly, you are celebrating the colonization, the occupation, the forcible occupation of Australia and the ensuing genocide. Everything that the descendants of colonialists enjoy today in Australia has, has come about through a lot of oppression, a lot of blood, a lot of, lot of outright genocide. So um, the, it's a dilemma and there's no easy answer. There's no easy way out. Uh, you, you will have your own friend circle, social circle. And, you know, it's just a, a holiday, a, fest, a holiday, holiday to celebrate. I, as a, from, as an individual, I don't think it's, there's anything wrong with celebrating or, or enjoying the occasion. Go out, have a barbie, have a few pints or, or whatever you do. But um, the way out is for the government of Australia to give the Aboriginal people their rights back, maybe some of their lands back. You can't say, okay, you can take the entire outback and we'll keep the nice prime real estate. There's a lot of marginalization even today. Even today, they live in huts and villages and all that. So as long as that situation continues, you are celebrating oppression. If, if they are given equal rights and they are given some restitution, and they are given some of their lands back and they, 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 you are allowed, you, and if you allow them to create their own nation within Australia, a separate nation, then you can celebrate your colonization day. See, the Aboriginal people, they were a nation. There were obviously lots of different Aboriginal tribes. There are these different linguistic groups and all that. But this was their continent. So maybe what Australia can do, maybe what the, Australia, the government of Australia can do is maybe they take one-fifth of the land of Australia as, as their nation as their nation state of colonized Australia. And they allow the Aboriginal people to create a separate nation on the rest of the territory. That would be justice. So they can have their own 
system of government which will not be influenced by the the descendants of the colonizers that would be justice even that would not be complete in full justice but that would be some element some level of justice will this happen it will never happen so as long as this never happens and as long as the australian aboriginal people are still oppressed still brutalized still marginalized as long as this situation continues australia day still will keep on commemorating oppression ongoing oppression and historical genocide but from a from an individual perspective so so i am talking about the big picture here from an individual perspective it's perfectly fine to enjoy any day you want including australia day okay let's take a different question descendant of rigvedic clan says in sumerian text there is a place called aratta whose king is anushnikhid sorry i i i can't pronounce that in insukheshdana insukheshdana nice name in sukheshdana some people speculate that this king lived in punjab or gandhar well uh, okay because sumerians also mentioned that aratta is a very wealthy place and lapis lazuli also found there and very difficult to reach there what's my thoughts on this what are my thoughts about this i have written about this i have not written about insukheshdana um, but i have written about aratta uh, let me pull out my article from which year was it 2016 2017 aryan invasion meets india facts let's see here it is let me click on that let's pull this up and put that on the screen this is my article from 2017 so this is the first article i know of that collates all the facts together all the different pieces of evidence and put the, puts them together now the aryan invasion thing is a big industry in india but i think this is where it all starts i am not saying i am i i, I <laughs> take credit for every for, for the work everybody else is doing there have been great scholars who have been doing working on this for a very long time dr david frawley david dr dr subhash kak uh, shrikant talagiri ji uh, dr conrad else lots of people have been uh, of course um, uh, dr bibi lal and lots of other people so yeah one stands on the shoulders of giants and one must recognize the giants and uh, yeah so this article in this article i write about aratta the bodhiyana shrota sutra aratta here we are so consider the bodhiyana shrota sutra a vedic text uh, 18.44 of this records it's a sanskrit vedic text it says this is the translation amavasu migrated westward his people are gandhari parshu and aratta So this refers to a Vedic king called Amavasu, whose people are the Gandhari. We know who the Gandhara people are. Gandhara, Afghanistan, the Parshu. We know who the Parshu are. The Persians, yes, and the Aratta. Now we know Gandhar. We know Parshu. So this guy, this king, this ancient Vedic king, migrated westwards, and his people are Gandhara, Gandhari, Parshu, and Aratta. So it looks like the the migration that gave rise to the the people of gandhar and the people of persia and aratta so what is aratta aratta is tentatively identified as living in the vicinity of mount ararat which is uh, located in present day turkey 
Eastern Anatolia and Armenia, Mount Ararat. This is the text. Uh, so all that is fine. The traditional Armenian name for Mount Ararat is Masis. It is named after the legendary Armenian king Amasya. <laughs> the, the name, the um, Armenian name Amasya is linguistically related to the name Amavasu of the Indian king, recorded in the Bodhiyana Sharota Sutra. This establishes literary evidence of the westward migration ex expansion of Indians via Afghanistan and through Persia into Armenia and Anatolia. So that is literary evidence of this place. Aratta or these people, the Aratta people. So most likely it could be the people, uh, the the ancestors of the uh, Armenians and maybe some Anatolian people. Uh, and Sumeria is not very far from this region. Sumeria is essentially present day Iraq, etc. Where's the map? Let's bring Sumeria onto the map. Where's the map? Where's the map? Where's the map? Let's bring in the map. Here, so uh, we know where Armenia is. I hope we all know. Here it is. This is Armenia, and Sumeria is is the region of of Iraq, Iraq and Syria and all that. So it's essentially the same region, essentially the same so, south of that region. So if Aratta was the region of Armenia, then the Sumerians would definitely have known about it because it's their neighboring territory. And I'm sure in the old days it was very wealthy and all that. So these are my thoughts about this matter. It's most likely somewhere in the vicinity of Armenia uh, that Aratha was. And it was the result of a westward migration of ancient Indians under the king Amavasu. Saurabh says, Karmas Dant of Dharmic culture sounds similar to the law of conservation of energy. But one is spiritual, one is physical. What's your opinion about this? This is a very interesting perspective that you are giving, Sarab, because karma is indeed a conservation law. The law of karma in Indian philosophy is the conservation of the merits and demerits of your actions across multiple lifetimes. So the concept, so see, in philosophy, there is something that connects philosophy with science. What is that? which connects philosophy and science. You can't mix philosophy and science. Please understand this. Science deals with the physical world and empirical evidence, with physical objects and empirical evidence and logic, the logic of mathematics. Philosophy deals with physical as well as spiritual objects and phenomena. So that's the difference. And also non-physical objects like the soul and, and things like ethics and all that. But philosophy also has logic. Logic. So the law of karma is the law of conservation of the merits and demerits of your actions across multiple lifetimes because according to the Indian philosophy, the soul, the atma is eternal. It is part of the greater Brahman, Brahman, the, the great uh, universal atma, which connects us to the divine. So it, according to Indian philosophy, Dharmic philosophy, every individual has an Atma, which is part of the great universal Atma. So there is a spark of the divine in each of us. That is how Indians, our ancestors, saw the universe and our place in the universe. So the law of karma is 
the conservation of the merits and demerits of your actions across the lifetimes, across the incarnations through which a soul passes. So even if you die and you did bad things or good things, when you're reborn, that will be conserved. And maybe you, you know, from this perspective, you could uh, answer why people are unequal, unequal. There is inequality in the world. Some people have misfortunes for no good reason. Some people have so many great talents and characteristics. Why are some people born tall and strong and handsome? And why are some people not so well blessed? Maybe it is the result of karma, which is conserved across incarnations and lifetimes. You know. So yes, Saurabh, a very interesting perspective you put forth. And I completely agree with this. Karma Siddhant of Dharmic culture is indeed a conservation law, but not a physical conservation law. It is a spiritual conservation law. It is the law of conservation of the merits and demerits of the actions of a soul across lifetimes. Shivagami Devi says, can you please talk about Emperor Ashoka's nine unknown men? It's said that they even exist today. And people like uh, a, Dr. APJ Abdul Kalam and Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein were a part of that. Okay, so we've always had these Navaratnas in the courts of various Indian kings and emperors. Uh, Emperor Vikramaditya is supposed is, is said to have had Navaratnas. Uh, and other emperors and kings also have had these great scholars and, and people who typically are nine in number. Navaratnas, right? It's an age-old concept uh, in India. And there was this uh, this writer called Talbot Mundy. Was, it, was he British? Was he American? Most likely British. British. Uh, so he wrote this uh, book called the, which I don't remember the name of the book. Maybe it, I, I I forget the name of the book. But the author is Talbot Mundy, and he wrote about these nine unknown men. And he, according to his version, it is Emperor Ashok who created this this system, this tradition of having nine people who specialize, who are the best of the lot in various specialties. You could have uh, musician, musicians and people who deal with uh, economics, scientists and whatnot. So different disciplines and the best of the best in those disciplines. Those would be the Navratnas or the, or the nine great men. And maybe they were kept secret or hidden so that nobody would interfere with, the, with their work, possibly. So that's what Talbot Mundi speculated. And then this became uh, this, this concept became quite famous. And some people say it's a secret society. So in the old days, the Navratnas were very well known. Everyone knew who were the great nine people who were part of the court and who were the, who were the greatest of the emperor's respect and patronage. Uh, but then uh, it is alleged that it, it became a secret society. Do, I, do we have any evidence of this? We don't have any evidence of this. So then if somebody claims that Dr. A.B.J. Abdul Kalam was one of them or Albert Einstein or Isaac Newton, Newton, I would say it's speculation. We have absolutely zero evidence of this being the case. But hey, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. So it's possible. Uh, But, you know, if it's indeed a secret society and you're asking me the question, if I knew about it, I would not talk about it. (laughs) All right. All right. Deep Jit says, I am pursuing masters in English literature. Somehow I feel literature is not a subject at all. It's rather a leisure or a hobby. Moreover, I get the feeling of guilt studying the literature of our colonizers' language. And I deeply regret my choice. What are your views? What are my views on English literature as a subject? Uh, thank you. 
you know, the question you have to ask yourself when you study a subject is, when I am done studying this, what can I produce? Society and civilization is built upon production. The more a society produces, the greater is that society and the more prosperous is the society. And when a society is sufficiently prosperous, it becomes a genuine civilization. Because prosperity brings in a great lifestyle which gives people the time for leisure activities like philosophy, like culture, like music, like literature. So all these activities are possible only when you have a high amount of prosperity in a civilization or culture. And that prosperity only comes through material production. Right? So when you study something, you have to ask yourself, when I am done studying this, when I receive my degree, what will I be able to produce? And will, let's say I'm able to produce something. Will that be of any use to society? This is the question you have to ask. Now, when you study English literature and you get a master's degree in English literature, what will you be able to, able to, what will you be able to produce? Words. Hopefully. I mean, I have known uh, students of English literature when I was myself a university student. And listen, you know my feeling about the English language. I do not consider a person who can't speak English well to be inferior. Why should we be made to speak English well? Okay, I speak English reasonably well. It doesn't mean that I'm superior from superior to somebody who can't speak English. That's not the case. It's just a goddamn language. It's a, it's a foreign language. So if somebody can't speak English, English well, it doesn't mean that they're inferior in any sense whatsoever. They may be far better than me in a multitude of ways. So my, what I'm saying is that I have known many students, as a, when I was a student myself, who were studying English literature, and they could not even speak English properly. And yet they were accepted into this particular discipline, and they even got their master's degrees without ever being able to speak English properly and form a, a, a full sentence without uh, grammatical errors. I'm not saying it makes them inferior. It, it tells you how bad the English Indian education system is. And once such a person acquires this degree, what will they produce? Absolutely nothing. And let's say you are good at English, or let's say we'll talk about French literature. You're good at French and you get a degree in French literature. What will you produce? You will produce words. Do words build a civilization? Words and literature are the outcome of a high civilization. They don't build or produce or create a great civilization. Every great civilization is characterized by wonderful literary output. But that is only after you're able to build a high level of prosperity. When India is, has been destroyed in the past thousand years economically, we want to build a great civilization again, which we will. Then you want to have acquire, you know, study for a degree that will enable you to be a productive member of Indian civilization or Indian society. So if you're studying English literature, it's indeed a leisure activity or a hobby. Literature is the output of is the is the outcome of great prosperity. It's a leisure activity. It's a hobby. I'm not saying it doesn't have a place in the world. Liter great literature is, is, is timeless. Ask me, look at the books behind me. I, I love literature. I have read, I don't know how many books. So I'm not saying literature isn't a good thing or it's, it's a futile pursuit. But I would say that a very small percentage of the population, maybe 0.1% would be good at it. And only they who so see some people are only good at poetry or, or, or 
writing great novels and people who are at that level should not be made to do other work so it's only those people who should go into english literature or whatever literature um yeah so that's what i feel about this now deepjit if you have taken the subject go ahead and study it get your degree don't don't spend your life regretting things get the degree and then move on into something productive unless you are going to be a great poet or something so i would say that uh yeah okay maybe maybe it's not maybe it would not have been the best possible the most op- most optimum choice of a degree to study for but that's fine you get your degree you have a master's degree then you can get a job in other other fields also that's what typically happens uh, i mean in the software industry you find people with a bachelor's degree in in commerce or or a master's degree in english literature and they end up in software and they become programmers and all that so it's perfectly fine it's possible to get a career in a whole different field than the one that you studied yeah but overall i agree with you that uh, literature is a leisure activity it's, it's a hobby and only for a very small number of people can it be a full time uh field a full a full time activity and a activity of serious endeavor for most of us it's only going to be a leisure activity or a hobby i still have more questions and i'm not going to be able to take them as always i try to take as many questions as possible but i always end up short because of the constraint of time now if you have questions for me i will take about 5 minutes of live chat questions and let's see if you have any questions for me um uh, you know i can i can do this all night i'm sure you will watch but <laughs> uh, you have to you have to have some discipline in life so i i i remember when i was beginning this if you look at the first 10 20 episodes i was i was uh, doing one hour episodes i used to take 10 or 12 questions and i used to stop it there then it it started going to 90 minutes then i started again bringing it down to 60 minutes and now i have said, i have decided i'll i'll make these episodes roughly 2 hours long so right okay you got questions please ask me and i will take a few questions um giuseppe de freya says how should we recognize the taliban regime they crushed democratic values like women's rights media freedom opposition to their barbaric rule and kill former government people Yes that is indeed what they do there is no democracy there uh women don't have uh, the same rights as men they uh, you know what happens to women there media freedom come on <laughs> you know maybe they kill some government people yeah that's how it is that's how it is in afghanistan under taliban rule things were much worse in china during the initial days initial years of the chinese communist party not in the same way but in a different way the thing is this there is no place for sentiment in geopolitics the government of india it has one job to to look out for the interests of the indian nation and the indian people and the interests are that we need to cooperate with afghanistan in order to in the long in the long run get regain our access to central asia and the rest of the world once pakistan is dealt with for that we need to cultivate good relations with whichever of our government exists in afghanistan and that's what we have done very well in the past few years so yes and see the thing is that in in the afghanistan we have a different culture now it's no longer indian culture not for the past 1000 years so they have a different way of life and uh, i'm not sure how uh, how trustworthy or reliable a pupol is poll 
But a recent Pew poll showed that more than 95% of the Afghanistan people want Sharia law and they want what Taliban is giving them, offering them. Uh, so, you know, it, it, that's how it is. Maybe most people in Afghanistan actually do want Sharia law. So, so it's not for us to judge how things are going there. Let the government of Afghanistan, whichever is in power, be there and we will cooperate with them on a nation-to-nation basis. If the people of Afghanistan feel oppressed and if they don't like the government, it is for them to make a choice whether to overthrow the government of not or not if they can. It's their choice and we will not interfere in their internal matters. That has to be our official policy and that's what we are doing. Okay. Uh, any other questions? Anjana Gala says, please explain Kachi people. Where did they come from and settle in the region of Kach? I can't seem to find accurate answers. Uh, thank you. Listen, all Indians came out of India. 70, 80,000 years ago, they came out of Africa. India was the first founder zone of the out of Africa migrants. And from India, people went all across the world. So the origin of the people of the Indian subcontinent is the Indian subcontinent. If you go back 70,000 years, that's the origin of the Kachi people. That's it. What it is? That's the origin of the Balochi people and the Kachi people and the Sindhi people, and and the people of Saurashtra and the people of Rajasthan and the people of Bengal and Odisha and Kalinga and and the Sinhalese people, and the Tamil people, all of them. We are all the same. We have been living in different parts of India for God knows how many generations, and we all have developed distinctive, slightly different dialects and slightly different traditions, but we are all the same. So Kachi people didn't, did not come from. From I don't know from where you some people may imagine they came from. They all we all came out originated in the Indian subcontinent, going back at least seventy thousand years. So yeah, that's what it is. And the origin of that, if you want to see a slightly deeper ancestry, it's the Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian history. That phase of Indian history. So I think the people of Gujarat and Sindh are the direct descendants of the Saraswati Sindhu people. And Kutch is obviously part of Gujarat. It's, it's closer linguistically and 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 uh, culturally to the to Sindh, isn't it? Than to mainland Gujarat, if if you could call that mainland. But yeah, so he, that is the origin. That's the origin. That's what I can tell you. Let's take maybe one more question. We are going way past the time limit. Uh, hmm. What do we have? What do we have? Why is it said that humans came from Africa only? Look, I would be very happy if they came from Mars or Jupiter, but the evidence that we have says that they came from Africa. The oldest evidence of humans, not just Homo sapiens, the oldest evidence of Homo sapiens, the oldest Homo sapiens bones or fossils we have found anywhere in the world are in North Africa. Jebel Irhud in, in Algeria, Tunisia, somewhere there. The oldest ancestral humans that we have found are, are Homo Habilis, Homo erectus, Ardipithecus, Australopithecus, um, and so on. These are also all, all found in Australia. That is what the evidence tells us. In science, we go by the evidence. If tomorrow we find an older evidence of, of ancestral, ancestral humans in Italy, that, that, let's say, then we will say there was an out-of-Italy migration. But as long as we don't have such evidence, we're going to say it's originated in Africa. Maybe someday we will find evidence of older, maybe, of older uh, human bones from, from somewhere else, perhaps. Then we will have to revise the, the, 
the, the, the understanding based on the evidence. Is always It is always driven by evidence. So the evidence says Africa is the place where humanity originated. So we will, so that's going to be what we accept. If new evidence comes to light, we will revise our model. That is how science works. There is no emotion involved in science. It's all based on evidence, empirical evidence. With that, I will end today's session. Thank you very much, as always, for all the questions. I am genuinely blessed that so many people want me to answer the questions. I cannot answer everyone's questions. For that, I apologize. And I thank you all for your viewership and uh, for watching this. And I will see you next week. This week, I am traveling in the, in just a couple of hours. I'm moving to the airport. So yeah, this weekend, there'll be no live streams. Next weekend, I think I'll put some recorded sessions. And from the week after that, we'll be back live. Until then, take care, all of you. Thank you very much once again. And uh, keep working hard. Keep raising your standards. And I will see you soon. Thank you. Bye.